0: Good morning, everyone. Again, like Colin said, welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Thanks so much for being here this morning at the best service, 1115, right? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. As well as for those of you joining online, I'm sure you celebrated and had all that kind of fanfare at home in your living room. That's awesome. So again, welcome. Um, If you don't know me, just allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And uh, as you can probably tell uh, from the graphics behind me, if you haven't been around here at weekend services at Grace Medina East uh, for the past three or four weeks, uh, you may not know that we have been in a series. Like I said, the graphics behind me reveal that the series we've been in is something that we have been calling Motives. And so if you haven't really had an opportunity to connect or plug into this series, or maybe you're a guest or you're new here with us today, Uh, just let me uh, catch us up to speed on what we've been really focusing on in this series. Imagine this, what we've been talking about in this series, Motives, is motives, right? Well, our motives, right? Our motivations, the inner reasons why we do the things that we do. And so the way we've been going about this conversation is we have been looking specifically at the middle section of what is arguably Jesus's most famous sermon, His certainly his, his, his most, most lengthy teaching that's found in the gospels, something called the Sermon on the Mount, which you may or may not have heard before. And basically we have been discovering kind of in this middle section that Jesus is teaching us about the importance of identifying, understanding, and seeing our core convictions like the stuff at the level deep down inside of who we are that really motivate or kind of engender or engineer or give birth to like the things, the actions, the activities that we actually do uh, in our everyday lives. And so what we've been saying again is that for every action that's played out before the watching world, that Jesus is saying that those things, are activities in life, they're not random, uh, they're not spontaneous. They don't just come out of nowhere. That Jesus is kind of saying, for everything that we do in life, we ought to be able to like follow the breadcrumb trails back, way down deep, and discover where our motivations and our core convictions lie deep down in our hearts, at like the seat of ourself, the seat of who we are. And so uh, last week, we looked specifically at a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And basically, we saw there that Jesus was teaching of the necessity of an inner illumination of the heart, of an inner illumination and transformation of our core convictions that only he can bring as the light of the world, and that that in turn, when that inner transformation starts to happen, that that light is in effect projected kind of like out of our eyes so that we are able to have a new vision for the way that Jesus wants us to live life in his kingdom, and that we can see the things that are around us, specifically our money and our stuff, material possessions, all that sort of thing, so that we can see those rightly, that we can see those in ways that would first and foremost glorify and honor God, and secondly would be about the business of expanding Jesus's kingdom in the world. And so we looked at that last week, and what we're going to do this week is we're just going to continue on uh, in this journey in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to go to the next subsection of this middle chunk of Jesus's teaching. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34. Matthew six twenty-five through 34. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and uh, start making your way to that section of scripture. If you have it on your tablet or device, you can go and have it there as well. That's the first time I've ever done that. So um, if if you don't have a uh, Bible to call your own or you don't have one with you, we just want to let you know that there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. And uh, if you choose to use those Bibles, you can find this passage on page 787 down in the lower right-hand corner uh, in those Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we just want you to go ahead and take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you, uh, home with you. That's yours. Just consider it our way of saying thank you for being here as well as uh, reflecting maybe our desire to get God's word, the way he speaks to us and his heart for us uh, in your hands. So um, as you're making your way out there, I thought it would be good because we have been at the Medina East Campus through the last several series. We've been making our way slowly through the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. And so what I thought it would be good to do is since we're a little past halfway in that journey, I thought it would be good before we hit this passage to kind of zoom out a little bit and get a little bit more of an aerial perspective as to what Jesus has said thus far. Uh, specifically about the rather upside down way, the really provocative and radical presentation of his teaching uh, that we find in in and throughout the Sermon on the Mount in what we have seen so far. You see, I think sometimes for us, when we read the Bible, we can sometimes, if we're parachuting into a passage like this, we can forget that Jesus has already said a lot that should honestly, if we're reading it well, it should mess with us and our present ways of living life that Jesus is offering throughout the sermon a very different presentation of what God, God's will is and what his desire for our lives are to be all about and what following Jesus would really look like. And so rather than uh, going through and reading the entire sermon up, uh, up to thus far uh, to give us that context, I thought what we do in the spirit of the back to school motif, right, that we're experiencing in our culture, I thought we'd just do a couple quick highlights, and do a little sermon review, okay? Maybe we should have called it summer sermon review or something like that. So nevertheless, a couple couple highlights. And again, this is just to draw out the provocative nature and the scandalous and shocking nature of what Jesus has been saying all the way through the sermon thus far. So for instance, he leads off the sermon. Literally the first thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so looking at this, we say that Jesus basically says, hey guys, if you want to follow me in my way of doing life, if you want to enter into the life of my kingdom that I'm offering to you, he says, guys, you're going to be truly well off in life. You're going to be vibrant and happy and blessed when you possess an impoverished and poor spirit. Uh, the Beatitudes, the blesseds, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, literally means congratulations in the original language. So Jesus says, congratulations, everybody when you're poor. He goes on later to say in those same Beatitudes, he says, you ought to be truly elated. You're truly well off in my kingdom. You could truly be excited about what God is up to in your life and in the world when you're persecuted and when you're reviled and when people misrepresent all the ideas and the expressions of who you are that you're supposed to be happy and well-off. Jesus says, this is what true life looks like when you're persecuted and reviled. He says things like, don't retaliate when wrong is done to you. You ought not to fight fire with fire. Instead, you're to turn the other cheek, which we looked at m- multiple uh, weeks back in our weekend service. We looked is, is uh, facial cheeks, okay? Because to turn the other cheek in a different way is actually very offensive and hurtful, right, to some people. But he says, turn the other cheek, When you're slapped, don't fight back. Give him the other side. He even says, guys, if a person in political authority, if in his day and age, a Roman centurion or soldier comes up to you who had the right to take the coat off your back, if he asks for your coat, instead of resisting him or doing it begrudgingly, you ought to give your shirt as well. Jesus in effect says, you can go shirtless in my kingdom when someone asks you, For clothing. And lastly, and this is kind of the culmination, I think, of the entire Sermon on the Mount, and again, it should be disorienting to us what Jesus says here. He says, Guys, my way of life looks like love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, for the same people who revile you and shame you and wish you dead. Instead of getting back and hating them too, you are to love your enemies. And love in scripture is less something like, oh, you should just be kind or polite. It is, you ought to empty yourself and all that you are so that the other person can flourish. That you're to love, you're to empty yourself so that your enemy can thrive. Your enemy can thrive. Now, in this recap, just notice again and again with me, just notice that Jesus is teaching us that the essential components of what it means to be his follower is something like this. A radical rejection of selfish desires so that other people might find life and benefit. A radical rejection of self so that others can find life, so that they can be exalted. Because I think this sermon is so hard to interpret and has been throughout the history of the Christian church by many smart scholars and theologians who have wrestled with what Jesus is actually doing here. But I don't think we need to comb all of those commentaries to see that this is the reason why this sermon is so hard to digest for us. Why? Well, because living that kind of way, the rejection of self and the exaltation of others simply does not come naturally to us, does it? Like we are hardwired for the opposite. We're hardwired to consume and absorb and take things into ourselves often at the neglect or the rejection of others. So what Jesus is saying here, this sermon is so difficult or should be if we're reading it rightly because this way of living is so unnatural. And so at this point in the sermon, Jesus's audience is probably thinking the same thing. It's provocative. The people who were seated on the hillside listening to Jesus say this in the first century are probably thinking about the tension that this way of living is to their default. And my guess is, and it's probably this way for us as well, is that if we go through the sermon and we see this presentation of Jesus, eventually we start to think inside. This tension erupts and it really births a huge question that I think lives down underneath in our hearts and minds. I think it was for them like this and it should be for us as well. The question is this, listen, Jesus, if being your disciple, if entering your way of doing life, if following you into the freedom that you offer means that I wind up being poor, shirtless, homeless, and reviled and shamed before other people, my question is this, Jesus, Jesus who's going to take care of me. Like if everything you're about and everything you want me to be about is the rejection of myself and me pouring myself out to the end for other people, how do I get my needs met in this specific arrangement? How does that happen? And I think what we're going to find is Jesus is really well aware that these are the kinds of questions that are unearthed within us as we progress through the Sermon on the Mount. I think Jesus is so genius because it's right here, I think in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, that Jesus gives a response to this inner angst and inner tension that his teaching and his way of life presents to us. This is what Jesus says. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, used for baking, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, well, what are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? Or what shall we wear? The pagans, they run after those things, all these things, and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So let's let's do this. We've read the whole passage of what Jesus says, I think, in response to this lingering question, how are my needs going to be met in your kingdom and following you, Jesus? Jesus. It's actually in in an effort to kind of hear what Jesus says. Let's go back to the beginning here and start to unpack what I think Jesus is attempting to teach us about these things. So if you start off here in the first verse, first things first, you notice he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry. I think worry is a really important word that appears here about your life, what you eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. So in other words, the first really kind of pivotal word that we encounter in this passage is this word worry. And we not only know that because it's the first verb or the first term that appears in the passage, but Jesus is going to repeat this appeal three more times. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry about tomorrow. So Jesus in effect says, therefore, in light of, in other words, in light of everything that I've taught you about my way of life thus far, he says, you should draw this conclusion. Don't worry about your life. Now, I think the term worry here in this particular English translation is helpful. It's good. It's not incorrect. But uh, it's kind of missing a fundamental component that appears in the word that's used in the original language. You see, this is actually reflected in uh, some other English translations. Maybe you have those in front of you or one of those in front of you. Where instead of the word worry, the word anxious appears. So in other words, Jesus would say, "'Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, eat or drink, or about the body, what you will wear.'" And I think this is really helpful to kind of unearth the idea of anxiety or anxiousness as Jesus is teaching here. You see, because if we think about uh, the word worry, uh, worry is something—it's kind of a fret or a dread or something you're concerned about that could exist in the present as well as the future. So, in other words, right now you could be really super worried or concerned about the fact that the person sitting next to you peed their pants or something like that. I don't know. Like, oh, I'm really worried about you. Are you okay? Like, physically, you can't hold it in, man. Like. So worry can be like a present thing. We can worry about stuff that's going on right now. But what anxiety draws out in this passage is the idea that we know the notion of anxiety is always attached to or typically attached to a future component, right? It's a future concern. It is concerned with some future event that may or may not happen and one spends the present and has all their energies consumed worrying or being concerned about what may or may not happen in the future. Now, so we all know this about anxiety. And even if we uh, were to go to the Oxford English Dictionary, if we we're to look up anxiety, we can see this embedded in the core definition, even in our English, that anxiety, according to this dictionary, is a feeling of worry. So there's the attachment or the tie in between anxiety and worry, right? But it's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about, catch this, an imminent event, right? An imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. It has the association of uncertainty with it. And so basically, Jesus is saying here, like, there is the concern about your tomorrow, the concern about whether you're going to eat tomorrow or whether you're going to be clothed tomorrow. And really, Jesus appeals to this idea of anxiety and says that logically speaking, Anxiety is not something that necessarily is born out of or birthed out of like reality and logic, right? That anxiety is more birthed out of like illogic and potentiality, right? Because anxiety has everything to do with an imminent event. It's something that may or may not happen, right? It's something that may or may not happen. And it's specifically associated with this inward dread this concern, this almost grief that the outcome of the event that we're projecting out into the future is not only uncertain, am I going to be okay? But it also could potentially be so undesirable. That future that we fret about could be detrimental to us and our preservation and our security. You see, I think all of us in one way, shape, or form or another have experienced some of this in our lives, right? Now, I know that not all anxiety is created equal. Some anxiety is bigger and more severe than others. But nevertheless, we can all get the gist of what Jesus is saying here and the idea of anxiety. I mean, think about it, just a couple examples. If you have ever woken up very early in the morning and you woke up and you immediately started thinking of the delicious spicy chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A and how that crispy breading would caress your taste buds, flow down your esophageal cavity and make its way gloriously into your internal digestive tract, right? If you've ever woken up early in the morning and thought about something like that and then you began to be anxious saying, the lines at Chick-fil-A drive through." at the peak hours, and those things are pretty intense. And if you've ever rearranged your entire daily schedule so you could hit the Chick-fil-A drive-through at the non-peak hours, you know that you have experienced and you've been impacted by anxiety, right? This future thing that may or may not happen. Uh, Likewise, if you are a parent or have ever been a parent of a teenage daughter who is out with her friends driving by herself, And if you've ever been up till all hours of the night sitting in your chair with the lamp on, twiddling your thumbs, trying to figure out what to do, if you've ever thought about the potential outcome of what could happen to her, and if you've ever opened up your iPhone, gone to the Find My iPhone app and tracked the little node all the way through that represents her car, you know that you have been impacted by or have experienced tremendous anxiety, don't you? Now, listen, both of those things, uh, both of those examples are concerns in my life, by the way. Uh, one has a greater priority than the other. I get that. Uh, I'll let you decide which one that is. But here, I, I just don't want you to discount the power of Christian chicken in that, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really big deal to me in my life. So, uh, But listen, I, I know, I know, I get it. I know that these are silly examples. I get it. And in no way, shape, or form, please understand me, if you suffer from crippling or paralyzing anxiety, I am in no way trying to trivialize the intensity of the worry that many of us or that you experience. What I'm simply trying to do in this is to show us that fundamentally anxiety is related to our inability and our sense of loss at being able to control the future and secure an outcome that we think would be beneficial to us. And so Jesus takes all these ideas of the what-ifs of anxiety And he addresses them here in this passage. And he does so by first saying again, don't be anxious. And I think that this uh, don't be anxious is less a command of a wagging finger saying, you ought not to do it. Just stop it already. Come on, quit being anxious. I think instead, most commentators and scholars would agree that the command here is more an invitation. It's saying you don't have to carry the anxiety and the worry that you do. And Jesus backs up this statement and this invitation by giving two illustrations or two examples from God's providential care of creation. He says, first, just look at the birds of the air. And the word look here isn't just a fleeting glance like, hey, check out the birds. Aren't their wings cool? Now go back to what I've been doing beforehand. This word implies like gaze intently, observe what's happening Look at an outward process and do the math and understand something fundamentally true about what God can do for you. It says, look intently at the way the birds of the air operate. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Jesus looks and he says observe the birds what do birds do right it's not that birds have this carefree living where they do no work during during the day right Birds, especially mother birds, are constantly fluttering about. They're flying around, looking and working and laboring for the food that they need. And that they're little, I used to, I called them chicklets last service. Like that, that's a gum, but like they're uh, birdlings. And someone told me in between services, dude, it's hatchlings. Come on. So like they, they go around constantly and they're, they're working and they're getting worms and all kinds of nutrient-based stuff to give to their hatchlings. They're ensuring that their hatchlings have the nest. They're working. But here's what birds don't do day in and day out. Birds do not stockpile and store because they're freaked out that the resources that they have access to today will not be there tomorrow. That's what Jesus says. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. The birds have just a default presupposition that when they go to bed at night and they wake up the next morning, that there's going to be enough out there. There's going to be plenty of provision for them to be secure and meet their needs. And Jesus says, how much more with you? He continues on and he says, why do you worry about this clothing thing, right? See the flowers of the field grow, they don't labor or spin. Jesus again appeals like what you don't see the grass of the field doing is feverishly laboring to sew together linens and garments for itself. You just don't see that. They have, these things have a simple default trust in the capability, the power of God to provide for them each each day. And again, Jesus reiterates, if these aspects of creation are so fully secure in these things, Jesus says, it's going to be all the more true with those who bear the very image of God, with human beings. And Jesus asks two rhetorical questions at the end of each of these illustrations. He says, are you not so much more valuable than the birds, guys? And will not God so much more clothe you, you of little faith? And the implied answer to these rhetorical questions that Jesus asks is, man, do you see this? exponentially more will God provide for you? Because God has the power and the ability to give us everything we need to prepare us for tomorrow. And so, is that it? That's it. We should, complex problem, this anxiety thing, this worry thing, simple solution. Maybe we should just buy into all the slogans and the things that we've heard that might be along these lines if we're thinking this way. Like, man, bro, just let go and let God. Just let go and let God, man. Why are you striving and fighting so hard for the clothes on your back, man? Just let go and let God. Dude, Carrie Underwood got it so right, man. Jesus, take the wheel, chill out don't worry, man. What's that old song? Don't worry. Be happy. You guys got it. So should we just buy into these platitudes? Should we just buy in? Well, here's the problem with that. And I think every one of this room maybe shares this. We've heard all the platitudes before. Even we've, some of us have tried to buy into them to a great deal and a great length. But buying into these things, hearing these things, here's the problem, we've heard them all before, but hearing them does not make our anxiety go away. It doesn't. And I think Jesus knows this. In fact, even from what Jesus says here, what Jesus cannot mean is that, oh, you just just let go and let God and everything will be fine. Your anxiety will go away. Neither can Jesus mean that if if someone follows Jesus, that they will never go hungry and never go without clothing in life. Like if you just survey the history of Christianity and the church, you know that that has occurred on so many occasions, ardent, loving followers of Jesus who have gone hungry for their Lord. And we see it even in parts of the world today where this is true. And even for that matter, Jesus himself, did you know this, was homeless when he was here on the earth. He didn't have a place to call home. And furthermore, even Jesus himself, he uttered the words, I thirst, Father, while he was being nailed up naked to a cross. And furthermore, hearing all of these things, all these platitudes, Has not served to to bolster my faith, or it has not engendered a greater faith in me, in God's ability, His capability to provide for my needs, specifically to provide for my tomorrow. And so, the question that we have to ask, guys, in light of our experience, is this Is Jesus' teaching here anemic? Is it without power? Can Jesus not actually back up what he's saying here? Or is something else going on? Are we missing something that Jesus wants to draw our attention to in this passage? Because we ask, why is it so, it seems so impossible for me to simply just trust God for tomorrow, even in light of the evidence of the birds and the grass? Are we missing something? What is Jesus really after here that might lead us to freedom from things like anxiety and worry about tomorrow. Well, truth be told, I think there is actually, I don't think we're without hope here. And there's actually a small phrase that Jesus utters later in this passage that we might think is just maybe a throwaway statement. It's just a passing glance or something that we might initially on first read think is relatively inconsequential. But I think if we begin to dig into this phrase in its original context in the world of Jesus's day and what they knew, I believe that this phrase has the power to not just magically with a click of the finger make anxiety go away, but to reorient and change our perspective to what Jesus is actually drawing our attention to in this passage above all else. And I think that that phrase is found in verse 32. It's this, for the pagans run after these things. The pagans run after these things. Don't fret about, what are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? What are we gonna wear? Listen, the pagans run after these things. So what does Jesus mean here? And how does the original context maybe help us arrive at some of these things? Well, let's just take a moment, let's take a moment to sniff down this trail a little bit. Uh, First things first. I think the question we have to ask is, Jesus says the pagans, right, run after these things. So what does he mean by the word pagan? Pagan. So that's not a term I don't think that we use a lot a lot in our modern day context, right? Um, it may be even a little derogatory or offensive to some people. Um, it's not like you go out to mow your lawn every day. You look across the street and you're like, hey, Bob, how's it going, you dirty old pagan? Good to see you. We're not doing that, right? And so the question is, what does Jesus mean here when he uses the word pagan? What did this signify? Well, here's what you got to know. Actually, the word behind pagan in this passage and in this translation is the Greek word ethne. It's a Greek word ethne. And that's actually where we get our English word ethnic, ethnic. And so fundamentally, uh, pagans meant kind of people group. And specifically, pagan could also be translated, it is in other English translations, as the word Gentiles. So Jesus would say, for the Gentiles, or the pagans run after these things securing their tomorrow. Now, here's what you gotta know about ethne or Gentile, as Jesus would have used it here. Ethne or Gentile or pagan simply means non-Jew, right? You are not a Jewish person. So now, while that's good as a base definition, it's a little bit more than that. That is somewhat insufficient. You see, because the word ethne and the idea of ethnicity was more attached in Jesus's culture, not necessarily to sharing a common ancestor, but more so, I want you to hear this, more so with which gods you believed you were related to, associated with, and served. you hear that? It's more so related to which gods you related with, served, and believed you were connected to. So if you were a Jew or a Jewish person in Jesus's day, you were basically saying that we are serving, we are connected to the, the one true God, Yahweh the God who Jesus claims in his ministry to represent in everything that he's doing and teaching. So Jewish person connected in relationship to Yahweh. Conversely, if you were a pagan, if you were a non-Jewish person, it would mean something like this. You're a non-Jewish, it's non-Jewish people who served other gods apart from Yahweh. You were not related to Yahweh who is the one true God of the Jewish people. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, I think it becomes really illuminating for us when we begin to sketch a little bit of a portrait of the kind of relationship pagan people had with their various gods, Now, truth be told, though the specific gods that pagan peoples worshiped in the Roman world of Jesus's day would vary from city to city and culture to culture, there were certain common core characteristics among all the gods that the various people groups served, especially in the ways that these people groups believed that their gods had created them for what purpose and how they were supposed to relate and interact with those gods. You see, I find it interesting that if you go to many ancient pagan or Gentile religious texts, you will discover that the reason for the gods creating humanity was not akin to what we find in the Bible back in Genesis 1 and 2, where there's a loving God who decides to partner with human beings and creates them and fashions them in his image and loves them and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply, Instead, in these ancient pagan religious texts, over and over and over again, you get the speed that the gods created human beings, check this out, for slave labor. Slave labor. So in other words, the gods were, in their mythologies, busy warring against each other, and war kind of makes you tired, and it makes you hungry, or like a Snickers, it makes you hangry. So the gods are like, just give me a Snickers, man. But who's gonna give me the Snickers? I'm tired, I need to rest, I want some food. The gods said, I know what we'll do. We'll make these servants. And human beings were said to have been created and birthed into the world. And so human beings were designed to meet the needs of the gods gods in these pagan systems. And so naturally, you can kind of get the gist of it, right? This created, at least from a human perspective, a kind of symbiotic relationship between humanity and the gods, a kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours sort of arrangement. And so for the gods, in exchange for human beings sacrificing animals to them, which was how they would get their food, in exchange for those things, as well as certain meticulous religious observance, the gods would look upon the performance of their constituents, evaluate whether the constituents did everything right and to a T, whether their needs were satisfied. And if the constituent or the one, the worshiper who served them got it right, the gods would then bestow rewards and benefits to those constituents. And so when their needs were met, when the gods' needs were met, the gods would unlock certain privileges for you. And the privileges were things like wealth, property, material prosperity, things like health. They would give you power They would also increase your social status and your reputation in the world. Even fertility was at stake. You had to meet the demands of the gods in order to unlock the ability to bear children. Now, if you think about all these things that would be unlocked or given to you, all of these things from a human being standpoint were the things that they believed would secure a good future for them, for them, for tomorrow. Now, some of you might be like, well, that's not necessarily a super bad gig, is it? I mean, I'm a video gamer. I like to do all the things that I do to pass the level and unlock the achievement and award, right? So that's not necessarily a bad gig, is it? I mean, if I know how to work the system, this sounds like a pretty sweet deal. I'm going to live the cushy, amazing life. Well, hold on a second. Not so fast. A couple things that you need to know about the gods. First and foremost the worshiper had to know exactly what the prescription was, what the gods and goddesses of their day wanted. And here's the thing, gods and goddesses in these ancient cultures weren't exactly all cozy with the idea of revealing that to humanity in the first place. See, again, we read the Bible and we read about a God who would go so far to reveal his plans and purposes and his love for us that he would send himself in the person of Jesus Christ to reveal himself to us. We get so used to that and we forget that these guys were, it was a mystery what the gods wanted. They had no clue. And they had to go through all these religious observances even to attempt to find out how they would please their gods. But secondly, secondly, Gentiles knew something about their gods that made this whole system extremely complicated. They knew something. They knew that their gods were not merciful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger like Yahweh, the God of the Jews. They knew their gods to be very different. They knew them to be fickle, unpredictable, inconsistent. What worked for you one day might not work for you tomorrow. And you were left to figure that out. And they were stingy. I love how one New Testament scholar sort of summarizes the pagan attitude toward the gods and goddesses of their day. Look at what he says. He says, the gods by very definition in these ancient texts do not play according to our rules. They're inconsistent, pursuing private quarrels, moody, And fanciful, eager for a bribe or sacrifice, prepared, love this, like rich but grumpy age relatives. Can I get an amen from anyone? Okay. To bless or to blight, to hurt or heal, depending on whether you kept them sweet, depending on whether you satisfied their needs. And so began a world of shrines and groves, all these religious observances, priests, processions, garlands, music, omens, oracles, inspecting entrails. Yeah, that was a thing all for the purpose of securing rich solemnities so that your city could be kept safe, so that your home would be secure, so that your sick could be healed, calming stormy seas. If we had to distill the substance of ancient religion, then we could say that it pertains to, check this out, love this word, negotiating something from the gods, to negotiating the relationship between the divine world of the gods and the human world here through ritual observance. The whole point was, please don't miss this, The whole point of the system was to secure the peace that only the gods could give you and that they could unlock alone, whereby harmonious relationships could be maintained. tell you what, as I've been uh, thinking about what it would have been like as a pagan person, as a Gentile to live in this system, um, and and to think about like the the, the common denominators of what was found there, when I think about this widespread attitude toward the gods, I honestly uh, think about something very tangible in my life today. And it has to do with uh, the relationship that I have with my 10-year-old son, Caleb. Now, here's one thing you need to know about uh, me when I think about Caleb. Guys, I do. I I love this little guy. I really do. He's awesome. And he's not so little anymore. He's 10. It's just kind of mind-blowing how how quickly time flies. But I know that for me, like internally, I know me, and I have this, I have this deep affection for this, for this guy. This deep affection. Like my heart just I love this kid. Like I am predisposed to be for his best and for his good. I want what's best for him in life. He is so precious to me. And my eldest daughter is right over here. You're precious to me too. We're all, you know, it's equal love. It's all that kind of stuff. So I love you, sweetie. Thank you. Um, But for the sake of this illustration, like I have this, this deep concern for him. And not only do I have a deep internal desire to see him do well, I have the will and I have the capability to see him want to thrive in life. I not only feel it, I have the desire to do something about it. And not only do I feel and have the desire, I routinely back those things up with faithful action to my son. Because my son, because of what I do, right? Because of the way I work and labor, because of my concern for him, he has access to resources. He has access to everything he needs. He, everything he needs. food. He has clothing because I'm his dad and he's a part of my household. He has opportunities. He has the security of love and affection that comes from me being his father and his mom being his mother. And here's the thing. Caleb did not do anything to deserve any of that, right? Nothing. As a matter of fact, like this kid 10 years ago, he just showed up in my house one day and... I don't know how it I don't know how it happened. And, uh, and it's just been that way. Like that's, that's just the way it operates. It's been that way ever since. But although that is true, and although that is imperfectly, I know as a father, but although that is the environment that I have cultivated in my home, there is still this thing that shows up semi-frequently in Caleb that I can only describe as this like self-preservational mechanism that kicks in. You see, so often, rather than buy into the genuine love, care, and compassion, and my desire and concern for him, and my provision for him, rather than buy into that as his father, he often treats me like a fickle, unpredictable, stingy, and inconsistent ancient pagan deity. And I've told him so, too. I'm like, listen, man, come on. And the most recent example of this was actually this past Tuesday, this past Tuesday. So it's back to school time. My kids went back to school on Tuesday, so did Caleb. And uh, here's one thing you need to know about back to school. The teachers, if you're a teacher in this room, you know this, they always talk about the summer slide, right? So it's sort of that academic downturn or erosion that occurs over the summer that makes it like, makes kids incorrigible to teach when the teachers get them back in the fall. And so Caleb went through the summer slide academically, but he also went through a summer slide just as a human being in general. Like he would spend his days and I'd look over and he's on the couch, he's drooling. He looked more like a species of werewolf than he looked like a human being. And he's just playing his video games over and over and over again. And um, my wife and I, we both agreed um, earlier this week, we just were like, we let him play way too many video games this summer. Like And so this kid has a problem already with being addicted to video games. So school's coming around. We have a rule in our house, no video games on school nights. That's the rhythm. That's kind of the rule that we abide by as a family. And so obviously Caleb's frustrated. And literally this week he's gone through, I'm I'm not kidding you, a chemical withdrawal. Like he just, he's been so tough with these video game things. But Tuesday rolls around, he goes to school. He knows that he's not supposed to play video games at night on that night. So he goes to school, he comes home from school, we're there at the door like great parents, like, how's your first day, buddy? And he's like, fine. And he proceeds to march right up the stairs into his room with his school Google Chromebook, shuts the door, and five minutes go by. Like, what's this kid doing? So me and his mom, we walked upstairs and we did the whole, like, when you want to catch your kids in the act, you don't want to give them a chance to hide the thing that they're doing wrong. We're like, knock, knock, open. (laughs) So we did the knock, knock, open move and we walked in there and sure enough, what's he doing? He's playing video games on his Google Chromebook, the one that school just gave him. And so, yeah, somebody said exactly over here. Yeah. So we did what we said we would do. We took away the Google Chromebook and we revoked some privileges that he otherwise enjoys. So I go downstairs and after about 15 minutes of Caleb pouting in his room, my wife calls me back upstairs. She motions me into our bedroom and she looks over, she points at the dresser. And Caleb had left a note on our dresser for for me and his mom. And I'm gonna show you what the note is. I got permission from him for this. This is what the note said. This is for me being an idiot. (laughs) This is for me being an idiot. And like, I get it. There's self-deprecation going on there and I don't want to encourage that, but that's awesome. Like I had a a good chuckle after I saw this note. And incidentally, this is the same kind of handwriting and note that all you husbands write notes to your wife every day, (laughs) every single day. So this is for me being an idiot. And initially I chuckled and I'm like, oh. And then I thought, wow, this kid's genuinely remorseful. Wow, that's amazing. He gets it. And then my wife pointed over to um, what was next to the note. And what was next to the note, check this out, was $33, $33 of his own money. He liquidated his piggy bank, $33 of his own money. And I was like, I did it right. That's exactly what we should be doing. His parents. But I tell you what, initially, I was like, oh, what a sweet kid. And then I saw the money and I got to tell you, my heart broke a little bit. My heart broke. Because I think this reflects, this act reflects a tendency in my son to not view me as a loving, caring father who above everything else in life, a desire What's best for him? I want to provide for him. I want to see him thrive and flourish. And yet, so often, so often, my son sees me not as a loving father who wants to meet his needs, but as a fickle, capricious, angry, unpredictable, ancient pagan God, as someone to be negotiated or bartered with, someone to be appeased, appeased. And, guys, I think this has taught me personally this week, and I hope hope you're connecting with this as well. This has taught me a lot about the way I view God. And honestly, the way that we tend to view God. And how that contributes to the sustained worry that we have that we're not going to make it to tomorrow. Like, what are we? But little kids who are so hesitant to actually believe that not only is God capable and powerful enough to provide for us, but that he genuinely wants to from the core of who he is. How are we any different from the ancient pagans when it comes to how we think about God's intentions? Guys, I think Jesus knows he knows that we have this pagan syndrome that so easily comes to us when it comes to the character of God and when we think about our future. And I think that's why he follows up the comment about the pagans the way he does. "You're heavenly, not God, but you're heavenly. Come on. Father. Your heavenly Father who cares for you. He knows that you need these things. God is not like the fickle, unpredictable, pagan gods. He's powerful enough, but he's also good. And his heart to provide for you and for me is so pure, it's so pure. Not only is God powerful enough to take care of us, it's his default, it's his default. And that God demonstrates this desire Every day outwardly, he's faithful every single day in the world around us, in the birds and the grass, if our eyes are open enough to see it, to really see it. So Jesus says, man, what we can do is exchange our worrying about tomorrow and bartering with God, and we can trade that in for continued declarations about who God truly is and what his heart really is for us. And as he continues, he also lets us know that the secret to overcoming, or at least striking out on a path of overcoming worry and anxiety, is not about securing our own tomorrow through some kind of bartering system, but in believing God's true character and also taking up God's mission for our lives with tenacity and sincerity. Jesus follows up the comment about his heavenly father by saying, and here's what you ought to do with all the energies that you normally, that are normally sucked up by your worry and anxiety about whether or not you're going to be provided for. Take all those energies in light of what you know about God, and you are to seek his kingdom first in everything that you do. And seeking first, first here is not just in sequence, it's in priority. If the first exchange is giving up our striving and our bartering for continued declarations about who God really is, the second exchange is to give up our pursuits of striving for tomorrow and reapply those with dedication and devotion to the missional partnership that God has extended to us in his love to bring about who he is and his desires to the whole world around us. In effect, we are invited to exchange our striving for safety and security as our own central concern for making God and his will primary and his mission paramount. If we could just say it like this, it doesn't happen overnight, but the true start of the path to freedom from worry and anxiety looks this, to be free from anxiety, we must replace worry with worship and mistrust with mission. We must replace our worry about what's coming tomorrow with declarations repeatedly of God's character. We must replace our mistrust of his heart with a reception of the job that he's given us to do as a loving father in his family. And of course, this kind of thing requires a radical transformation of our motives. It requires a radical transformation of our motives. You see, once again, like everything else in the Sermon on the Mount, we discover that this is not something that we can do under our own power, is it? It's not. And honestly, I think that's the reason why me and many of us continue to linger in our anxiety and worry because we're trying to achieve this on our own. We're trying to achieve it on our own. Now, I don't wanna trivialize again the difficulty that many of us face. These issues are really real and complex, but I guess I'm just simply saying this. If we're gonna be free from the paralyzing worry that we experience so often. If we're gonna live in worship of God and live on his mission without inhibition, we need Jesus's power to revolutionize our heart. We do not need a righteousness that barters with our God. We need whose righteousness? His. We need the righteousness that Jesus procures for us and secured at the cross and in his resurrection, and he offers freely to those of us who will pledge ourselves to him by faith. To be free from this, it means saying yes to following Jesus, having our motives transform, and learning to worship God with reckless abandon, and go on his mission to seek his kingdom agenda first. So as the band comes up, all I wanna do, I'm just gonna close it out, All I want to do is extend an invitation to everybody who's here, everyone who's here. And that invitation is to begin maybe in this moment to put these ideas about replacing worry with worship and mistrust with mission. Let's decide right now to put this into practice together. You see, when the band plays and we sing these songs together, what are these lyrics and songs? but continual declarations of the praiseworthy character of our God and how much he cares about us. This is an opportunity to take anything and everything that's on your heart that you're anxious about or worried about. It's an opportunity to buy into the exchange by Jesus's power. And so I would encourage every single one of us as we sing and declare who God is to do that and to hand him over our anxieties. As First Peter 5 will say and encourage Christ's followers to do, he will say, cast all your anxieties on God. Why? Because he cares. Because he cares for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for teaching us what you did. Several thousand years ago, these truths amazingly ring true for us today. Jesus, we acknowledge that we are pained and we suffer so unnecessarily of our questioning about tomorrow and the future. We're so anxious. We're so worrisome. But Jesus, thank you that you have offered us a way to live in freedom from those things knowing first and foremost how good you are. Father, how good you are as one who cares for us. And the amazing thing that you would take broken people who struggle with things like anxiety about tomorrow, and you would choose to transform us and ignite us on a mission that is unstoppable, the expanse of your kingdom in the world. Jesus, we are asking by your Holy Spirit for every single person in this room, for the Christ follower, as well as the nice non-Christ follower alike, Would you ignite within us a desire to say yes to you at whatever stage we're at in that journey? To love you and to declare these truths about who you are and to see ourselves differently as ones who are on your kingdom mission above all else. Thank you, Jesus, that there is freedom from worry. There's freedom from anxiety. We desire even now to take our first steps into loving you and seeing what that freedom looks like. Be with us, be with us. We need you and we praise you and worship you right now. In your name, amen.